0: pod 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 rugby pod
1: Welcome to the first episode of the Rugby Pod Beyond Expected series presented by Asahi Super Dry official beer of the Rugby World Cup 2023 Throughout this series we'll be talking to legends of the game as they recount stories from their career, the unexpected moments that happened on the pitch and the surprising connections, friendships and post-match beers shared off the pitch. First up we're delighted to be joined by Colt Hero, former All Black fly half Stephen Donald to talk about his incredible journey. Yeah, mate, it's amazing to have a World Cup legend on the pod
0: for this beyond expected series, and someone after my own heart, really, who clearly loved the game both on and off the field. How are you, pal? What are you up to these days? Fishing, drinking? What I mean, what's going on in Beavers' world?
2: I'll tell you what, mate. I have a lot more busier than I ever dreamed of being post footy. I'd love to say I'm just doing fishing and and the other stuff, but uh, no, I'm on, a, I'm on a radio show daily over here in New Zealand. That's sort of my my bread and butter every, every day, three to six. We started a booze company a wee while ago, and unfortunately, that takes up a hell of a lot of time as well, and uh, me and Izzy Dag have done a few TV shows that we've actually just done a month in France as travel show presenters, and itself is probably a loose form travel show, I dare I say, but uh, that's coming to here over here in New Zealand in about a month's time too, so yeah, fair bit packed into it, and, and three kids all under four, so...
3: Beaver, let's, we, let's speed through the kids a bit because we've moaned about kids enough on this podcast. So let's get this right because under the radar, we spent a bit of time in Hong Kong and you probably thought there's no chance this big Scottish joke is going to go on and carry on doing a podcast. Not that I thought that World Cup legend would have gone on to be on the radio, doing a travel show, doing all these things. Let's start with the radio. So like, is this all off the back of the World Cup glory, the profile, or was this always part of your Journey which was going to happen, always part of Beaver's story.
2: No, dare I say, uh, if the World Cup doesn't happen, I don't think I get my own radio show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> love it. Uh, finished up in Japan when COVID hit, really. It was sort of twiddling the thumbs there. I had about six months of doing nothing, as we, I guess, we all did. Then this, uh, an Aussie company came to New Zealand to start up a sports radio station. They offered me the run home of Kurt Stanway, who you boys might know from doing all the Sky, Sky Sport rugby stuff. Uh, New Zealand so she's good and uh, I just give my shit chat and she runs the show so it's um but I never thought I'd be in the media I hated the media when I was playing footy now B1 is a bit of a contradiction and really enjoying it to be fair
3: Beaver hence why we've got you on the number one beyond expected part of our podcast because it is completely beyond expected one thing that isn't beyond expected but I still don't know the answer to the question Beaver love it one of the best nicknames. In I would love to have been called the Beaver. Why are you called the Beaver?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a hugely disappointing story because obviously people get very excited by it. Just make one up. <laughs> <laughs> as a child, I was a very ugly child. I didn't grow up. To a <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm still an ugly adult. But um, as a child, I just had two big teeth and that was all I had for a long, long time. And one of my cruel, cruel mates when we were youngsters decided to call me Beaver Stuck with me locally in the small town that I grew up in. And then I went to play down in Waikato. Unfortunately, there was a couple of connections to my hometown that word had got about what my name was. Since then, it's just followed me. And now to this day, probably the wife and my mum's probably the only one that calls me Steamer.
0: (laughs) That's when you're in trouble as well, right?
2: Yeah, correct. (laughs) Correct.
0: Well, it's a very small band of brothers that you're a part of in terms of kicking the winning points in a World Cup final. There's the great Johnny Wilkinson, the great Joel Stransky, yourself, and I can't think of anyone else who have literally kicked the winning points in a World Cup final. And we'll get onto the story about the befores and afters in a bit, but have any of you three connected and talked about the glory of winning a World Cup, basically single-handedly for your country, by slotting the winner?
2: <laughs> no, no, because I don't really see myself in that category, to be fair, but I must have played or sat on the bench when the when the boys were playing Johnny in there, but no, I haven't really... Uh, Cross paths too much there or my great mates uh, Mikey Clarsons, who uh, went and played for Toulon after we played together in Bath would always tell me that he's upgraded and gone down to Talon and playing with Johnny now and then I just <laughs> to always pull him into line with those sorts of comments but no I, I run into Joel Stransky a little bit with the TV stuff he's over a little bit and uh, we have him on our radio show a little bit too I mean as a kid growing up Joel Stransky broke your heart so I remember crying myself to sleep after, as a 10 year old after that 95 World Cup final so uh his name still sends shudders for most Kiwis, to be fair.
3: Beaver, I don't think it's fair that me and Goody and Andy Rowe go through the archives and tell your story from 2011. But we need to go through it. It's one of the most amazing stories. Can you just give us a kind of snapshot? You don't need to go slow. Let's really set the scene of how Beaver is primetime radio. He's got a travel show and you're now on the Rugby Pod. We would have had you anyway, We would because we spent some time in Hong Kong. I I'll, I'll love you as a human, but you might not have been in Hong Kong if it weren't for 2011. So basically, Correct. it all comes down to that. So can you just set the scene for the listeners and just talk us through how you get to that amazing point where you've become such a legend?
2: Well, ironically, Hong Kong's the starting point. Yes!
0: <laughs> and
3: the ending point. Heaven
2: and hell. And the ending point. That's when I knew that it had all happened. I actually wouldn't have allowed myself to go back with you boys to the sevens had uh, the World Cup not happened because the Hong Kong was always going to be my Bermuda Triangle until World Cup final. So <laughs> Hong Kong, obviously, played a test match there for the All Blacks and came on with about 25 to go. Had a boa and we lost on the Hooter. We then went on a Northern Tour. We went in the All Blacks sort of obviously shut everything out, media and all that sort of stuff. But once I got home, realised that I was, uh, I was getting all the heat for that Hong Kong loss to the Wallabies. I think it was our only loss on the Tour. And then... All of summer, during I guess my holiday period, started to really appreciate how much the public had, had turned and uh, the backlash. Then had a Super Rugby campaign that, again, whenever we played outside of Hamilton, uh, the heat came on from uh, from the fans and what have you. With about three three or four weeks to go before the All Black team would be named at the end of Super Rugby, had an offer come through from Bath, said to my manager, look, I don't really want to go because if I go, that's the reason for the All Blacks not to pick me. And then simply, he, he's actually a good mate of mine. And he said to me, look, it's better you sign now than once these All Blacks are announced. Because, yeah, things are going to be different for you in a month's time. Which pretty much said to me that you're not going to get picked. So signed with Bath, got that process all done, got it through my head that it was all over. Played in the MPC. They told me you had to stay around. I wanted to go to Bath as soon as the NPC finished. Said you had to stay around for six, seven weeks. I was pretty slack on my training during that six, seven weeks. I sort of knew that Bath was going to be there, but what I did between now and then wasn't really going to affect it, so I just enjoyed life. And then, yeah, the, the fateful phone call come. about what well, must have been semi-final week. I was down the river here catching whitebait, which is a, a little New Zealand seafood delicacy.
0: Fried. Love them
2: fried little fritters, then basically got off the river, had been out of reception. All these calls had come in from this one number. i deleted Ted's number. I was sulking, so I didn't want his number on my phone. But then Milsey, my great mate Milsey Mullaina, rang up, and I thought, that's bizarre, Milsey's ringing me, because he'd just been ruled out of the World Cup the night before in the final because he had what was he, done? he had done a shoulder or something. And then, you know, he said, you, you better ring Ted. So I rang Ted, and he said, get to Auckland tomorrow, and away we go, sort of thing.
0: It's a real hard thing to do, isn't it? Because the way the contracts work there are very different to over here. Like They had control of your contract, couldn't release you to get to Bath. So you were very honest then, said, you know, I'd let my training go. Had you done anything?
2: Uh, no, not really, no. No. <laughs> no, 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 not. Just
0: fishing. So you are working your arms on the fishing, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe the odd barbecue and the odd night out here and there. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs>
3: So, what was your initial thought, Beaver? So, you get the call. Are you thinking, "Oh my God, I am not in any kind of shape at all"? So, from that moment, did you fast? Did you did you walk home? Did you swim home? (laughs) What was your initial thought? Because, like, looking at it, and again, like 2011, the narrative around being in New Zealand, the fact that Dan Carter was the superstar, and they'd gone through a few of the players to get to you. Like, at what point were you like, "Right, this is"? real now and then what did you do like I, because you must have been panicking right
2: i mean fasting certainly wasn't a thing back then i mean i need to fast <laughs> now but um <laughs> fasting wasn't a thing back then. so i was off the that was off the equation i mean i remember getting into the hotel and eating the nice healthy food they did in the all black hotel and i said to her boys geez this is the healthiest thing i've seen for six weeks <laughs> <laughs> but it was more of a case of initially got the core, yep stoked why is it taking so long ted sort of thing and then <laughs> Once I got in there, Nick Gill, who's the All Black trainer and still the All Black trainer. My new friend. (laughs) I've seen you guys had him on there. (laughs) He's been my chief's trainer since I was a kid and he knew that I enjoyed life and and the way I used to go about things. So I sort of saddled up to him in camp and I said, Gilly, mate, I'm not in great shape. I said, mate, I'll just do what I can do. I'll go to extras, whatever. And he said, no, no, don't be silly. You've got a big motor as far as your fitness levels go. Just do a bit of sharpening. You'll be fine. Once I got into the training kits and they probably worked out that she's carrying a bit more than he usually would. Skinny little runt who they usually have to try and put beef on wasn't wasn't the case this time around. So that's when there's a little bit of panic. But again, didn't really think too much about it, to be honest.
0: No, certainly not. And I, I'll come on to the final in a bit because the shirt was being tugged down a lot and I've done a lot of shirt tugging to try and get it over the belly a few <laughs> times in my career. Talking to us about the build-up then because obviously you go in, you get to a match day, obviously the semi-final first and then the final how much time did it take to sort of get up to speed on what they were doing? Because we're at the crux of a World Cup here, a home World Cup where the pressure is monumental for the All Blacks, especially after, you know, the previous World Cups in 07 when you were massive favourites and France do a job and all that stuff. How hard was it to get up to speed and were you ever thinking, geez, I could end up playing the World Cup finally or was it still, you know, hopefully I'm just on the bench or whatever and we win it and I don't <laughs> have to get get involved too much?
2: <laughs> well, like as far as getting up to speed, calls and the rest of it, it was that was that was a breeze because obviously had been in there the majority of the time the previous four years. Nothing had really changed. And in fact, because of the injuries to DC and and a few of the other things, they'd actually simplified things even more. So that sort of things wasn't a concern. By the time I got in there, they were training bugger all simply because they were so beaten up. I mean, obviously it's well documented that that Richie was on one foot, so. He was only training towards the end of the weeks and, and things like that. So it wasn't a massive amount of training, as far as me personally goes. Sat through that whole week of the semi-final, didn't get on. And, you know, like, I guess my own headspace was obviously... I'd had a year from hell as far as the off-field reaction all the rest of it. And it was what I sort of craved to be in there. So I was actually probably in good headspace. But I do remember going down the waterfront. We used to sneak out at night time to go get ice creams down at uh, Mission Bay, which is a part of Auckland. I remember saying to my great my great mate, Ka Hui, I said, he was starting on the wing, and I said, look, if they haven't forgiven me about Hong Kong yet, and there's two minutes to go in a World Cup final, and they haven't put me on, you're going down, just so I can get out there, because in New Zealand, we have these uh, questions on the bottom of bottle caps and beers, and I didn't want to be the one with the only, the only All Black not to get on in the grand final. So, me and it had sorted a deal out that I was going to come on for a faked injury, so... The hit space was very relaxed as far as uh, time and how much I was going to get out there for.
3: So you get the call. You're in the best shape you can possibly be in. The shirt is five sizes too small. (laughs) What are the emotions of that? I know we are going back through the archives, but I mean, for our listeners, listen to this. It is like one of the most unbelievable stories. Well, there's a a movie on it called The Kick. (laughs) That's how special it was. But just take us through that. Beaver, we're fucked. You're on. (laughs) Yeah.
2: yeah, Well, well, it's basically because I... I saw uh, cruds go down and, you know, you know, it's like most guys go down and then they get a bit of attention and they sort of dust it off and they said, get up, get ready. And I was like, oh, he'd be right. So I got up a little bit and then looked up at the big screen and it's the moment where he puts his arms around the Medicos and tries to put some weight on his knee and it just collapses. And that's when it sort of hit me, okay, okay, now this is, now this is real. Then it was a case of, I didn't have too much time to think about it. As I say, the expression of having a chip on one's shoulder for the for previous 10 or 11 months had sort of sort of been pretty true with me. So it is something that I wanted to be a part of and craved and just thought realistically how that year had unfolded. It was never going to happen. So I guess everything that was coming my way there was bonus territory. And then at halftime, Ted comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, you take over the goal kicking. That's the first 10 minutes that I've been out there hadn't really woken me up to the fact that you're not fishing now. Ted said to me at half time, uh, you better start goal kicking. That's when it really hit me. But okay, I'm really in the middle of it now. <laughs>
0: we'll get to the goal kicking in a minute. It's obviously the big story, and Jim mentioned it then, the kick, where you do kick the wear and there's a movie made after you. I've been there when I've come on for Johnny Wilkinson or I've come on for Charlie Hodgson. And the whole of the stadium are like, oh, oh no. Oh, no, Johnny's going off. And you can feel it, can't you? You can actually, as a 10, when you know, like, the parameters of where you sit in the pecking order and all this stuff, and all your mates are trying to gee up, come on, Goody, you can do it. Come on, Beaver, you know, you're the man now. And you're like, oh, the panic is real, isn't it? Because you're like, fuck, what's the first (laughs) player I'm calling (laughs) What, You know, and everyone's looking at you, and you're like, it is genuine panic sometimes, isn't it? Was there any feeling of that at all? Or was it just, let's get in there and, you know, just do what Beaver does?
2: Well, in the past, it has been because it's, it's usually been backing up DC, and obviously there's not, there's not many that uh, can come close to, to that man's ability. So I guess because of where they got to as far as the injuries post-DC, there's a little bit less of that and a little bit to sort of, right, it's your, it's your time and it's your turn now. And I keep going back to it, but the Hong Kong aspect had sat and cut so deep and uh, and the fallout had been... I oh, you so harsh when the time came and that you never thought you were going to get again to prove that you are a proper All-Black, then, you know, you just wanted to make it make it count. And, you know, it was no sports psychologist or whatever that got you into that headspace. It was, I guess it was just the 10 or 11 months of, you know, getting kicked in the guts that sort of drove you to want to perform at the World Cup final. And ironically, once I was in there, I didn't really think about it's a World Cup final. Probably should have, but if I hadn't, who knows, probably would have missed it. You never know. But that was probably the headspace I was in. It was sort of like, oh, well, this is a bonus.
0: Yeah, 100%. Now, let's talk about the kick then, because we're looking back on it, right? You stick the ball down the tee from that position, and personally, you'd expect to get that 10 times out of 10, right? Yeah. It's one of those kicks that big donkeys like Jim go, right, if he misses this, he's a clown, right?
3: <laughs> where was it exactly? Whereabouts was it? Set the scene for a Goody. Well, it's straight in front of the sticks, isn't it, Stevie? Oh, easy then. You would heel it over.
0: And
2: it was, what was it, 35, 40 out? Yeah, 35, 36. I mean, after a few beers, it becomes 45. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> It was in your own half, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been there where you know the world is watching you or the whole stadium. And it's the World Cup final. Against France, you're under pressure. Yeah. And you're at Eden Park. And everything is set for the All Blacks to win, yet there's still that big thing around that they haven't got over the line in the last sort of three or four World Cups or whatever it was. And all the pressure's on you. I just want to go and dive deep into your psyche as you put the ball down on the tee because you know all that pressure as a kicker, right? You know the score. You know how long's left. You know...
3: Your belly's hanging out at the bottom of your But the jersey. mine was, yeah. Stevie's wasn't. He was put- I saw him tug his shirt was, loads yeah. of
0: times. They were short shirts, weren't they, at that point?
3: Extremely. Too much,
0: but... Are you thinking about all that stuff when you put the ball down in the tee? Because I would be, and I'd be shitting myself, even though it's a kick that you would get over in your sleep at training every day of the week.
2: I wasn't thinking about anything other than that. I mean, whenever I've got myself into into trouble off the tee, it's been because, I mean, and you know this. Like people get goal kicking coaches, they get this sort of coach, they get this sort of coach. I mean, goal kickers, no, you need a sports psych more than anything. It's the it's what's going on in the head. What, what determines if the ball's going over, in, in my eyes. I mean, if you can zone in for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, or whatever it is that's required, she goes over. So because of, I guess, the, the state of mind that I was in, it was very much grab I had a thoughts that whenever I get myself into trouble, it's usually because everything quickens up. The placing of the ball quickens up. The run-up quickens up. Coming through the ball quickens up. So kicking coach, actually, Mick Byrne, was a massive part of my, my career back in New Zealand when he was with the All Blacks. I just said, mate, when you bring the tea out, just tell me to stay slow. And I know I wasn't slow as as I, as I thought I was. Uh, I was probably still bloody quick, but I was just slow enough. So it was just the usual two things I thought of, get through the ball and watch the ball and okay. just do it slowly. And that's all I was thinking about, to be fair, which, you know, obviously, again, if I go back to what you were saying before, good, if I'd been thinking about all this and all that, I would have probably got myself into trouble because, again, I guess experience taught me Ten months prior, when I was on that interview tour, the Australian game, I sort of knew that if I'd nailed that interview tour, then I, mean, I was going to be a World Cup squad member. And I guess that was the noise in your head, as opposed to going out, playing well, and just putting in a performance, as opposed to oh, just just make sure you get this, and uh, you'll be in the World Cup sort of thing. So I guess I had learned from from experience what's important right then and there, and that's that's why I guess I was able to do what I had to do that night. Um, ironically, people say, what was it life seeing it go through, blah, blah, blah. I always start mine just about a metre inside the right and upright and came off the boot, and I was like, oh, yeah, sweet. So I charged back. But that was the World Cup. that All the proper good goal kickers were complaining about the flights of the ball and all the rest of it. They were, yeah. And I got told later on that night that she had ducktailed out the other way. If anything, mine you to go left, but apparently this one went right and went to uh, Dangerously close to that right hand upright uh, when I was charging back, which, again, I'm glad I didn't see happen because I would have had a heart attack. But it was one of those things that I guess <laughs> it was on my side that night.
0: Once you hit it, the run back was a strong run back. You're like, and I've been there <laughs> when you've hit a good goal and you're like, yeah, it was a good strong run back because you're like, yeah, sweet, that's over. Are you thinking about endorsement deals on the way back? How long was left?
2: What what minute was it, roughly? Oh, no, there's, there's still probably 20-odd to go. Oh, gosh. So... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hadn't hadn't quite signed the 10-year endorsement deal at that stage. Uh, (laughs) But to be honest, I I always fed off my goal-kicking, rightfully or wrongfully. I always, If if the goal-kicking starts well, goes well, then everything else flows. And suddenly, I think after the goal-kick, you start to feel 10 foot tall again. Obviously, it was great it went over for my own life, but it was also good it went over for my game because I think that got me into it, settled me down, made me feel like the boss again as far as dictating, we're doing this, we're doing that. Unfortunately, pretty much after that, we didn't see the ball for the next 20 minutes. France went on a rampant attack and I had to do what I least enjoy doing in rugby and that's tackling. It was still one of those nights that I guess you just never forget.
1: What were you, on that run back, what were you saying to everyone? Because it's quite a famous run back and you're pointing
2: and you're pulling your shirt up and <laughs> down and pointing. <laughs> and, Book uh, the and, and uh, nightclubs. Book that table. <laughs> I'm a hero. Give me <laughs> the other one. Viaduct in Auckland now.
0: Yeah, uh, Dan uh, who? Put his number back <laughs> in my phone.
2: <laughs> 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 no, it would have been very much just rubbish chat from a 10, really. Catch this kick off. Let's get straight back down there, pretty much. Just your usual sort of, usual short of chat. On that on that front, but yeah, I have seen the footage of me running back. I was a little bit more juiced up than normal. So uh yeah, there was probably some absolute rubbish coming out of my mouth, but generally it would have been, someone catch this and we'll kick it down there.
3: I just got a shiver of goosebumps then because we had Freddie Burns on. We were talking about his drop goal in the Prem final. And I know it's not on the same level. Like I understand that the World Cup, the biggest stage, but that final whistle goes, Beaver. I can't even imagine the emotion because... Coaches talk about that euphoria when the whistle goes when you win a game, like we've had it before, like to try and talk about it is a, is a difficult thing to put into words when that final whistle goes beaver like just talk us through the emotion, not only have you won a World Cup, you've been left out, you've kicked the winning goal, your life's changed forever. Did you feel that then? Just give us a, an idea of how how you felt personally
2: the thing i I' still thinking about it and talking about it now it was almost like for forty minutes probably after that final whistle when you're on that field. And that's how long it took, off, I think, for all the carry-on before the medal stuff. It almost felt – I don't want to get too spiritual here. No, let's do it. Let's go there. You you thought you were watching yourself almost out of body. You were just literally floating on adrenaline. Because, so, I mean, I remember being in the bottom of rucks after somehow a Frenchman would fall over me and I'd claim it as a tackle. And I was literally vomiting, because obviously we've talked about the condition I was in. And I, and I had a couple of smews on Eden Park that night at the bottom of Rucks. I was in all sorts fitness-wise. <laughs> <That's laughs> but then I've seen myself post-game in the celebrations and I'm running around like a lunatic, you know, and hugging and jumping and the rest of it. And, and I always think back to myself, where did that energy come from? Because, I mean, you are telling yourself you were done and dusted at the bottom of Rucks when you were spewing on the ground. So that time after that final whistle, Is something that I can't see myself ever being able to do that again. I'm not sure where in life I'll get that sort of euphoria. But it just was the most bizarre feeling of, yeah, as I say, it's almost like you were there, but you weren't there. You were just floating around Eden Park. Kiwis in the crowd were just going mad. I mean, most Kiwis at most test matches, they took off about five minutes before full time because they want to beat the Auckland traffic. So for people to still be there, they were there for about an hour and a half after the game, two hours, just unheard of in New Zealand. So... It was just the most unbelievable time in our lives. That that post final whistle. I mean, you wish you could have it over and over again, but unfortunately, you can't get greedy on it. It was just so special.
0: And were you running around the field shouting
2: "Redemption"? Fuck you!
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm the hero yeah. now. Because on that Beaver, doubling down on what Goody's saying there, like within the New Zealand public, you know, it was all about Dan Carter. You weren't good enough. The fact that you were third, fourth in line. To be playing in that position, I can't even imagine the hysteria and the emotion that you must have gone through. Like, redemption would have been one of them. Like, oh my God, what has just happened? Do you know what I mean? Like, I just, it must be so hard. It's because with Wilkinson in 2003, when he drops the goal, it's Johnny Wilkinson. There's almost an expectation that he is going to get that opportunity and it's written in the stars. Like, it's actually unbelievable. Like, we knew we were having you on the podcast today, but to go through the archives to actually see. And remember what you did. I can't even imagine, as a a human being, how that felt. And you've tried to contextualize it there. But then how that carries through one's life. Like after, you know, the way that you perceived in the public, within your family. When you sat around the dinner table with your mum and your
1: dad and your siblings and your wife. Like, you did it. (laughs) It's it's unbelievable. And this is different as well. Because Beaver was roasted. Like, no one has ever been roasted mm. before in the New Zealand public. The oh, media. I'll ask you
0: the question then, Andy Rowe. Yeah. You're the ultimate All Black Norse fan. Yeah. Right? Where were you?
1: I was at a mate's place just down the road from Eden Park.
0: Right. And, yeah. and then
1: and when Beaver came on, what did you say? <laughs> Fuck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Proof, mate. <laughs> Proof's in the pudding. Beaver is a legend. And we're I, done. On Jim's point, I get it completely because I'm – Put myself in Beaver's shoes, which I can't because he's a World Cup winner and he's kicked the goal to win it. But Beaver, we played against each other a lot. And I always knew that I was third, fourth choice at England, and Johnny was the hero. Same thing. Dan Carter, I mean, ultimately, everyone talks about the greatest of the great. It's Johnny and Dan Carter. And then anyone else that gets to wear that shirt, everyone's kind of looking, oh fuck, it's not Dan Carter, it's not Johnny Wilkinson. So to prove people like idiots like Andy Rowe wrong. Mm, guilty. And I know it's not a you don't do it as I've proved everyone wrong. But you do see those little snippets in the press. That it's hard not to see them when everyone's clamouring for a Dan Carter or a Johnny Wilkinson. So, you're just walking around feeling a million dollars thinking, where's the free bar for the rest of my life, right? <laughs> it
2: was strange. Like, obviously, I'll never forget the way I was treated prior to that, you know, like, I mean, not that I want to carry it around and be bitter, but obviously, you know, it was that brutal it was ingrained in you. But, the whole hero and all this sort of carry on. I, I walked off the field going, You survived, you played, sweet as. And it wasn't until, I guess, the media afterwards. And then I remember later on that night I mean, when I say later on that night, it was, you're probably talking about six in the morning. Yeah, in the morning. But I was, I was actually still keeping it well and truly under control because, uh, again, my kicking coach, Mick Byrne, came to me pretty soon after we got back in the sheds and he says, Beaver, uh, it's been a hell of a day. I know what you like. We'll have plenty of time to really put the foot down later. Just enjoy this. It'll be a moment you'll never forget. And so I I, I just cruised around and, and had a few few beers here and there. But I remember talking to a couple of our staff attached to the All Blacks. And they go, oh, but down at this apartment that was something owned by the ADN, or hideout by the ADN, people down the viaduct. And they said, jeez, the world's going crazy for you at the moment, Beef." And I'm like, oh, what do, you, what do you mean? And like, obviously, the internet had just started to be a real thing and social media and all the rest of it. And, I didn't really have much idea. She goes, oh, you'll find out tomorrow. And I was like, oh, I didn't really think what they meant. And then once the parade started happening and then you know, there's all these signs and all the carry-on, you started to start to realise what, what they were going on about. That, you know, they certainly the things had turned the bit and all the rest of it. But again, you never really thought about yourself because you're just part of like, you know, there's superstars all through that team that did that a hell lot more for that World Cup than I did. I just came in in the last half hour and and how in the final so
0: don't be humble you kick the winner not the three of you have done it <laughs> it's, in the world ever in rugby you
2: know what I'm saying it's just tough to get your head around you know like obviously when people come up talking to you about it with genuine excitement as Kiwis do you always you know talk to them about it and, and tell them what they want to hear and stuff but to you it sort of almost seems it happened and it is what it is sort of thing but for Kiwis, when they come and find you, they, they always tell you if they're at the flat down the road or at this pub or what have you, and and telling you where they were in the in the world. That's quite cool when you hear those sorts of stories.
3: Did Dan Carter say
2: anything to you
3: about it after?
2: Desi? I oh, I mean, we to be fair, he's about the only first five in the country that I had a good relationship with because he was so far out of reach that so I didn't need him. You know, <laughs> <laughs>
3: didn't
2: need to make it personal with Dizzy. Uh, so we had a great relationship, and he was to be fair, he was stoked for me. He knew what. He knew what I'd gone through previously with, with everything in that previous 12 months. And, you know, we're not two dissimilar characters in a lot of ways.
3: Oh, we'd love to hear that, Beaver. Because he plays the straight bat of leadership <laughs> and bringing out... He's loose as you like. This is what I mean. Like, DC is so loose. The and-
0: cleanest image you've ever seen, yet the absolute opposite in That's what I mean. I don't know
1: what
2: you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking
1: about. With Asahi Superdroid, one of the things we're doing throughout the series is building a Kampai 15. Kampai means... Cheers in English. So this is a fantasy 15 of players you'd like to share a beer with. Opponents you might have clashed with on the pitch, but would happily spend time with off the pitch. Teammates you've met in different countries over the years, or maybe someone you've never actually met in the flesh, but who has a reputation as a big character and someone you'd like to share a post-match drink with.
3: Because we don't really get an insight beaver into the All Blacks. We've just reference DC that we know that he's loose as a goose, but he's about to leadership now. But there's a few. I mean, there's a there's a, few, there's a few there's a few there's a load. Like we spent time with Kiwis. I spent a year over there. But it's in the it's in the shadows. There's a mystique, a hysteria. Unless you're Justin Marshall and you just go full noise. But you've got to pick three.
2: Pick three. Um, well, Andrew Hoare would be very tough to knock out of the uh, hooking position.
3: A long night. You want a long night? <laughs> yeah. I've had a few beers with him.
2: Well, yeah. You put a few days away there. And then if you have Horry, you have to have Woodcock. Yeah. Again, you're going one for one there before. And then when I knew you were going to ask this question, uh, I thought about the overseas aspect. And I had a year up in Suntory. And obviously played a fair bit against this fella anyway, Brumbies and, and Wallabies and what have you. But Georgie Smith. Legend. Georgie Smith would have to be a very, very competitive loose forward in your Kampai 15, and he's played a lot in Japan, so there you go.
3: And you've gone three rugby greats as well. Yeah, he's an animal, George Smith. I've
0: had some nights out with him, and not many people scare me drinking. Go and drink for drink, George Smith.
3: George Smith can put a lot away. But it clearly goes hand in hand, you know what I mean? As in, you've gone Andrew Hort, like one of the best hookers to have ever done it. Tony Woodcock, probably the best looser to have ever done it, and George Smith, arguably the best to have ever done it. Richie McCaw might have a bit to say about that. What was Richie like? Did he enjoy a bit of looseness, or was it just all business?
2: Richie was great fun, but obviously he couldn't allow himself as often as some of the other individuals in the team like ourselves. Because, uh, I mean, we've what, what got to appreciate it, and especially at that time, because we were World cup for 24 years and what have you, his role, it's pretty big. Like, the captain of the All Blacks... You know, it's it's a fairly big gig in New Zealand, as you can imagine. And he took so much on himself, particularly, I guess, after 07, he probably took even more on himself than than most captains you've ever been a part of, as far as a team goes. He he would take so much. So I guess we could be a little bit dusty on a Sunday. He probably felt he couldn't. So he picked, he picked his moments a lot better than a lot of us did.
1: Should we have a look at this World Cup yeah. and get Beaver's thoughts while he's here on, on how he thinks this is going to pan out? Because this All Blacks team a lot different in 2023 than what it was in 2022, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, I guess when everyone else was sort of thinking it was the end, the one thing that as a fan now you had pretty hopeful of was the players. And, you know, you thought, gee, I still think he's as good as anyone in the world or he's as good as anyone in the world. Or So you just sort of had the gut feeling that it's not what we've got as far as talent here. We've still got it. And, and now this year... That the first three weeks of the international sort of season has proved that. The the calibre of player still there at the moment is now, what, whether it be attitude, whether it be coaching or what have you, obviously there's changes all over shop as far as the coaching goes, it just seems to have clicked. And those guys that you fought were as good as anyone in the world still are. So you've got a fair bit of confidence on what they're dishing up. And also I guess they're playing like New Zealand rugby and there was a fear there at one stage, or what well, I was fearful of, that we were getting that obsessed about how Ireland was playing, how France was playing. That we were going down that route of playing like they do, and they obviously play very well at their own brand of football. But we were going away from the the footy that we are naturally good at, with with the skill level in our forwards, the pace and the dynamic backs. You know, and, and I was a little bit worried we were falling into a trap of trying to play play like an island or, or play like a French. So it's just great to see the brand of footy they're playing. Obviously, that 25 minutes opener against the Springboks gives us a fair bit of confidence uh, moving forward.
3: It's going to be so class. Beaver, as a fan, but also looking at the All Blacks' inside knowledge, who are you worried about and who do you think the All Blacks should be worried about going into the World Cup in France?
2: Yeah, I know they played them a couple of weeks ago and it was not comfortable, but but it was comfortable because they played so well. I still think the box come World Cup time are going to be... They're going to be so tough. they they got that monster forward pack. Oh, don't say that. If, if they get that kicking game right. Because, I mean, I reckon they're, they're having a bit of fun at the moment. You know, like, every time the All Blacks play a test match these days, it's life or death, what have you. With the Springboks, they seem to just have a little bit more of a, oh, OK, it didn't work out here. We're going to go win the World Cup. But that, to me, from the outside looking in, looks a little bit like the mentality. And at the moment, I mean... You saw how they tore apart the Wallabies. Well, they haven't given the ball that much air in probably 10 tests that they did that day against the Wallabies. And, and come come France, you know they're going to use that great forward pack. They're going to have the clerk kicking. They're just going to squeeze you and squeeze you. So, and they're going to have the forwards to be able to do it. So I still think that would be the biggest worry for me right now if you have the All Blacks because if they got everything perfect, and they do have to get everything perfect to probably do the All Blacks. They have to get their kicking game on the button, they would still be the one that I'd be most concerned about.
0: Not France then. first game.
2: Dunno, I'm just, if we can keep the pace of the game up tempo, I, I, I watched that Irish-French game in the Six Nations, and I just, I just thought the Irish played at a pace that at times, so I know, it was a great game of footy, I just thought at times the French were hanging in, that big forward pack were hanging in by the skin of their teeth to keep up with the pace of the Irish game that day.
0: Too many baguettes.
2: I know it's the old croissant's got me for that month I was uh, in France recently. Obviously, it's going to be such an emotional day for the French that it's going to be that opening game is going to be something else. But I I still believe that if you had to put it on one team, it would be the box. And then it's probably your France or your islands would be next.
0: Let's talk about the All Blacks then, because your position, fly half, you know, you've been the highs and the lows of everything there. The All Blacks at 10. There's obviously three options and it seems that Bowden Barrett now has been looked at more of a, of a fullback than a 10. Mwanga and now Mackenzie's in the mix as well. And you know as a 10, when you play the, the game at any level, club level, international, the whole team looking at the 10 for leadership and direction all that stuff. Who's your 10? Is it Mwanga without a shadow of a doubt? Do they need to say that he's our man and back him full stop? Or is it a case of they're all three great options and it could be a a massive positive for them. But it could also be a handbrake not knowing who's your actual leader at 10 and who is the boss. Because teams function best when they know who their boss 10 is, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And I and I think from what they've done, I don't think there's any doubt now. I think it is Richie Waringer. After the Argentinian test and McKenzie playing so well in that, you thought, well, hang on. This could be interesting. But then Richie plays the Springboks in Auckland, plays brilliantly, plays the Wallabies just in the weekend. There's no doubt that he will be the ten in Paris for that opener. And, uh, I mean, it's literally, we've got two tests now before that massive game against France in the opener. So, they won't be changing now. They'll probably roll out a fair few different options this weekend against the Wallabies in Dunedin. But I can't see it being anyone other than Richie Moanga. Um, and Bodie was always probably going to be their fullback of choice, even though there's obviously some wonderful options they could have gone with, I think, through leadership and experience. And probably a few lessons from 99 in that semi final against England, I think they probably n- realised the importance of having some experience out there. And, you know, like none more so than, than Bodie Barrett. And he's in great form at the moment at fullback as well.
3: That's class beaver. Are we going to see you in France and share a lovely cold asahi?
2: Uh, you are actually. Yes. Yeah, you could you could be there for, for one or two. Going to be up there at the start for that first sort of uh, week or 10 days. And then, by all accounts, I'm coming back from about quarterfinals onwards.
3: Lovely. Well, I might see the quarterfinal Scotland-New Zealand. Let's get an Asahi with him that first
0: weekend, because we're there, James.
3: Yes, we are. We're there for the majority of it. Mm. So I spent a bit of time in Hong Kong with Beaver. I don't know whether he wants to see me again. I can't remember whether it was James, Jimbo, or Jim <laughs> when I was there. What was it, Beaver, when we were in Hong Kong? Oh, was it was we, we were working. It was Jim, wasn't it? We were working. Thank you. Corporate
0: James. Corporate James, that is. We yeah. were
3: working. act, Beaver. Absolutely loved that. Bit of nostalgia. Yeah. Even though I'm not a Kiwi, but nostalgia. I do have to ask him one last question though are you backing the All Blacks to win it?
0: I mean it's probably a silly question asking an expert All Black you're genuinely thinking All Blacks are winning the World
2: Cup I'm uh, more convinced than ever about 12 months ago when they'd blown out at the uh, bidding agency here in New Zealand I got on them so for all sorts of reasons I want them to get home but no no I'm, uh, I'm convinced that uh, they're on the right track at the moment and you're right Jim I reckon Scotland are a chance you just ruined it hang on I believed everything you said
3: just re-say that Beaver just go a little bit more detail thank you uh, for that and why
2: I've just got a funny feeling they're going to jag one of the big games and then that's going to throw the whole pool into disarray isn't it I've just got a feeling that they'll get out
3: Beaver knows his rugby Mm. Thank you, Beaver. We will see you at the quarterfinal because it could be (laughs) New Zealand, Scotland, and that's where we might get off. But I'm happy with that. Beaver, good timing, mate. We've said goodbye. All right, guys. Top, top bloke. Yeah, I could listen to Beaver all day. How I wonder if he didn't win the World Cup and kick the winner. Whether he'd be that deep rooted in knowledge now, or he would just—why be horrible? No, I'm just his character, like an, an absolute legend. Yeah. But like, I mean, it's amazing how good is having a success story like that. What is him, but also after rugby, yeah, he's gone on and he's doing. It's a amazing. TV show. He's he's doing radio. But look how honest he was with it. Right. He's so saying cool.
0: probably if I didn't, I hated the press, and I, you know when he played, and if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be where I am now. Which is part of a life cycle, isn't it? It's like what Peter Crouch says. Someone asked him a question. What would you be if you weren't a professional footballer? He's like a virgin. virgin. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you take your opportunities. What I mean, what a story though! You've had a movie made after you. You were, I wouldn't say Public Enemy Number One, but oh yeah, he was. No, oh, you've been horrible again, Andy Rowe. But Redemption—it's not even Redemption. It's like he had an amazing career behind Dan Carter. So you think of Super Rugby and everything that he did, and you kind of forget what he did in the All Black jersey before that but that's all you need mate walk around with your medal on pal because as I said there's only three people in World Cup history who have kicked the winner in a World Cup him Johnny Wilkinson and Joel Stransky
3: how are you mate what a life unreal and he's a top lad as well there I spent some time with him in Hong Kong yeah. so cheers to that Andrew cheers James cheers hey, to the Asahi there we go Asahi we're on this is it It feels real now <laughs>